Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast. On today's episode, my conversation with Katie Ravenwood. Katie is a professional musician and a public health data scientist. She has taught and performed music in the Washington, D.C. area for more than 20 years. In this conversation, we talk about all things public health and data, education in music, and how to cook a perfect pork roast. So please enjoy my conversation with Katie Ravenwood. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. <laughs> As you know, but I will also tell the audience, you were one of the very first people that I had on my list of guests because you're amazing and because well, I want an excuse to hang out with you. And because when I first dreamed of this podcast, you were going through a career transition and actually going to work in the field of public health. Mm -hmm. So I was super excited to sit down and chat with you about that. And I remain excited. <laughs> and here we are. We manifested it. But I want to start back a little bit. First, I want to know, because I don't know somehow, mm -hmm. how you ended up in the D.C. area. Because you are a southern girl. You are a transplant. Yep. In fact. So I where am. are you from? I am from Alabama originally, we're just south of Birmingham. Um, it's a little town called Pelham, um, and I grew up there. It's very sort of you know everything you think about Alabama: football and barbecue and all those things. And I love it. I love going going back there. I go back there really regularly to see my family. They all live there. Um, but I, I do just, think football. Know. What? Huh? Like football? Like why is football so Alabama? Why is that what I think, even though I know nothing else about it? I could very easily kind of drop into the stereotype and say because there's nothing else to do, <laughs> because that's what everybody kind of wants to say. Yeah. Um, but there's something so, like, intrinsic and gut level about football there, because really, there is no, it's, everything is based on college football there. Like, who you're either an Auburn fan or an Alabama fan, mm. and, you know, even if you didn't go to either of those schools, you kind of have to pick a side. And... It's like this whole big community thing. Everybody goes into, you know, watching football. They all talk about it. That's the water cooler stuff you, at the grocery store. I mean, I can't even tell you, even now, I wear Alabama things. I only went there briefly at the beginning of my college career. But I'll wear an Alabama hat to the grocery store here in Maryland, and literally I'll come around the aisle, and some dude will be like, roll tide. <laughs> I'm like, I love this. I'm not even in Alabama, yes, and you know. Like, yes. this is great. So it's this huge community building thing. Yeah. Um, like my whole family like has, you know, periods where they've gotten together to watch football together. Like my sister has a whole group of people that she gets together and watch games with, like this group of moms and all the kids. And they have a good time. It's every week. And it's sort of a nice wow. point of community outside of, you know, some other different things where they can kind of access that. Yeah. And you always know you have something in common to talk to somebody about because you're probably going to be able to talk about football with somebody. So, so at, at what age... Could you have like understood a football game? I mean, is this like from a very young age you're well, watching like it? Six or seven. Wow. Yeah. In um in our house, we didn't just watch the game of our team, which when I was a child was Auburn because my dad is an engineer and went to Auburn. You know, War Eagle. Um, I'm getting a lot of mixed messages here. <laughs> I know it's terrible. Oh, believe me, the shift happened. It happened later. It was it was like an earthquake. It was not. It, it was like everyone was so like proclaimed about it. Like you're going where? <laughs> You know, um, but the family fell apart. <laughs> How could you do this to us? <laughs> you did this You're going to roll tide. Like I have all these little baby like shirts, like from when I was a kid, Aww. these little like, I'm a tiger too, you know, and all these things. And then I decided to go to Alabama. And it was, wow. like, my father was very excellent about it. He said not one word. 
Um, but we would watch football games. And, you know, so every Saturday, that's what happened in the house. And it was not like any kind of mandate. It's just everybody sat around and did that. And, you know, so we would they would be broadcast on TV and, you know, we would see the Alabama game and the Auburn game and sometimes whatever other SEC team was around or playing at a reasonable time. Um, and we would just sit there. And so, of course, you know, my dad, who was a, a super enthusiastic football fan, would sit there and cheer and, he, you know, like, you know, yell at the TV. And, you know, the guy's going to get the tackle and he's like, get him, get him, get him. And we're like, what, what is he talking about? You know, so we'd be like, Dad, what did he do? And he's like, oh, he went there. He, he had to tackle him because he was about to get a touchdown. Dad, what's a touchdown? You know, and so by like five or six years old, you know, you're watching it and you're doing the same things, you know, so you're watching him and you know like what what's about to happen so you go to a football game and you if you go to a game there it's hilarious to watch all the fans in the stands because even the tiny ones are like watching it's about to be a football game and they're up on their seats like yeah you know it's the cutest thing so and that's how language is learned you know and that's how culture is and traditions are passed on yeah that's amazing i love that okay so you're from alabama Mm -hmm. you cheated on your home family's school you found a new school and then you really cheated and you moved north and ended up in the D.C. area of all places. So tell me about that journey. So that, shockingly enough, that has to do with football, too. Um, when I was in high school, uh, I had a really great band program. Um, one of the best band directors, I will talk about him endlessly, always, um, Jim Duran. He, he was um, really, really an excellent music teacher. And I started in when I was in middle school, you know, of course, because you go, OK, are you going to be like, it's not like you have to choose sports or music, but, you know, kind of falls out that way a little bit. Mm -hmm. And my best friend from across the street came across the street and said, she had this beat up old box and she's like, Hey, so I'm going to be in the band and I'm going to play the clarinet and you have to do it too. I mean, there was no option. (laughs) And she opens it up and it's her dad's clarinet for when he was in the marching band at Auburn. And it's like, you know, all beat up, but it's her dad's. And she was my, you know, we were BFF. So we had to go everywhere together. Clearly. So I was like, going, went inside and, Mom, I have to be in band. She's like, yeah, okay, cool, pivot, whatever. I've been playing piano for, you know, probably three or four years at that point. Pivot, like, you want to be a clarinet player? All right, fine. So, you know, joined the band, met this band director, and there's a great band culture there because, of course, there's marching band for football and there's all this other stuff. So there's right. no orchestra in schools there. So it's, you have to, you're either a wind player or you're not, you know. Oh, interesting. And so I joined the band, and I – the, I was fortunate that my band director went to my church. I grew up in – that's part, also part of the culture there. Church is a very big deal. That's how most people experience community outside of football. Right. Um, and he led what was called the church orchestra. We actually had a band that played every Sunday. Before praise bands were like a big thing, like they put this together. And he, as this little baby sixth grader, was like, I want you to come play in the church band. Oh, I was so terrible. I was, you know, I was squeaking all the time and, you know, bless him. But he was just like, it's awesome. And he would give me like little lessons like, OK, we'll do this with your fingers. And it's a little better. I was out of tune. Didn't care. But so I was doing that at church. I was in band and he was really funny. And you grow this community of people in band. And I just kind of moved into the idea that I wanted to be a musician. Like I knew when I was probably a freshman in high school that I wanted to be a serious musician. So I started thinking about it and I had this little group of friends who also wanted to do that same thing. So the best, one of the best music schools in Alabama is University of Alabama. Of course, the direct rival to my dad's school. Of course. And they had an amazing wind ensemble program and an orchestra program there. And I had an audition there, got a full scholarship. Like it was great. I'm like, yes, yeah, going to go to music school there. And um, so 
you know, decided to go to Alabama. Of course, like I said, my dad said nothing about this. Like he, I mean, a full ride is a full ride. For real. Like he was like, this is great. You do what you want. And, you know, they have been phenomenally supportive of me of my entire life of being a musician. I mean, never one negative word, Um, which is more than I can say for a lot of people, you know, Um, even though they knew it was going to be difficult, like they have always expressed ultimate faith and support in what I've done. It's been really fabulous. So, you know, I go off to school and I, as I'm there, I'm kind of going, okay, well, I like it here, but I don't really want to be here. I needed to be somewhere else, like mm-hmm. out of that community, because I kind of realized pretty early that I was a big square peg in that round hole of the community and I needed to maybe be somewhere else. And so when I was in my sophomore year, I met the clarinet teacher at Arizona State University, Bob Spring, mm-hmm. and immediately was just like, this guy knows what's up. Like, I want to study with him. He's so excited about playing music. He had a way of communicating, even in, like, the smallest things, like how, you know, to be passionate, how to communicate, how to really make it a a way to speak to other people. And so I knew I kind of wanted to leave. You know, I was kind of not feeling the University of Alabama. As much as I love them, they're great. They're fabulous and still a phenomenal, you know, school. Um. So I decided to go there, and I transferred. And, um, to, Arizona to Arizona State. State. Yeah. Okay, so we're now even further away from right. Washington, so, D.C. So, so I was all the way cheating. The mystery. All you're the way just out. I'm like, into NFL football territory. It's bad. Oh, my like, gosh. <laughs> Look at you. Grand Canyon. Yeah, I know. Mountains. So far away. Cacti. Yeah. My dad drove me out there the first time. And bless dad, he, like, you, you know, he, he, he drove me out there and he had to drop me off and we barely like found me a place to live. It was like so last minute, you know, and he's having to leave me and I had to go to do my piano test for school and, and he was going to get on a flight and leave and he's hugging me and he's like crying. He's like, I'm leaving my child out here. And I'm like, this is the first time I've ever seen my dad cry ever, Aww. you know, and he's like, you're so far away. And I was like, you know, it'll be all right, dad. You know, I go out the door and I'm like, ah, you know, here I am far away from everyone. So I have to back up because actually that's not the reason I ended up here. I went to Arizona first, but then um, when I was in high school at band camp. This one time? This one time. At band camp? Indeed. um, I met a guy who became my first husband Ah. later on. Spoiler. Um, But I met him when I was in high school at band camp. And we sort of had this little rocky correspondence. This was before email was like really a thing. Pen pals? Oh my God. Like little Christmas presents. Like he sent me a sweater for Christmas. It was so cute. So romantic. You know, and he was a very, very dashing, good looking trumpet player. Absolute husband material. Yes. Trumpet? And it was terrible. Like I knew the minute that I met him, it was awful. I was like, and you know, you have that, I had that realization and I was like, this is the guy you're going to marry. And I was like, what's it about? I didn't talk to him for like two more weeks. I was like, no, 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 Terrifying. No. I have other things I need to do here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we don't, we, he lived here. I was going on whatever little path I was going on, um, not even thinking about it, you know, and just random like letters back and forth. And when I got to school at Arizona, um, we both decided to go to, back to the same camp in the summer um, and kind of solidified the whole long distance relationship and ended up getting married after I was done with college. And he lived here. He was in grad school at University of Maryland. So, oh, yeah. Wow. So first of all, <laughs> so many things have already come up for me. I'm like, <laughs> you have so many questions. Is the whole reason that I've been seeking community my whole life because I never had football or church? I mean, it's all <laughs> becoming so clear. I was just robbed of community because there was no football and no church. So putting that on my list, you know, mm. things my children might need. Um, 
You can find community in lots of other ways, and there there are insidious aspects it's, as well. But it's, like, it's true, it's true, yeah. but it's nice. It, I do I do value when communities have that structure, mm-hmm. and I I do think that there's something to be said, of course, for finding many ways to build community. And I, no joke, have spent my entire life mm-hmm. seeking it and building it. But I think it's very interesting when a community is formed around shared interests, shared mm-hmm. values. And I think that even though obviously it's flawed, it can be flawed, I think it's beautiful too. And I think it's nice to be able to look back on that and see the ways in which it was good, mm-hmm. even if we all know many of the ways in which those institutions right. are challenging. challenging. I also love that the word pivot came up already mm-hmm. with your mom <laughs> saying, sure, at age you know eight or whatever, yeah. go ahead and pivot from piano to clarinet because... Mm-hmm. Um, when I first wrote down what I wanted to talk to you about, mm-hmm. it I had the word pivot right there, talking about pivots. And then I love the winding path, the ending mm-hmm. up here for a man, right? A Which man that so we're not, not even we're not even ever. hanging out anymore, <laughs> you know. But like he brought you here, and here you are. Well, and so to be fair, like, I was this hotshot little clarinet player, you know. At this point, I mean, I'm auditioning for all these orchestras and doing all this. So I'm originally it. an orchestral person, you yes. know, like, um, and I do a lot. A lot of more different things now, but I I had sort of you know auditioned. I was on the sub list for the uh, the opera here in different places, and you know played with the union, all these different orchestras. We have tons of them around D.C. So you know when I moved here, I sort of immediately started moving in that circle and doing all the work here, and that was good too. I just knew you know it's not to be like it wasn't about the man. It was totally about the man, but but also it was a good career move because it's a big city. There was a lot of things to do here. I knew that it, I would be able to work here, you know. If you're going to move for a man, it doesn't hurt to move to a great city (laughs) with a very robust paid music community. (laughs) I mean, if you had to move for a man somewhere, why not here? It's like here or New York. Why not? Um, by the way, did you like Arizona State? Like, did you have a good time? Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, it's it's one of the more it's really bizarre because it's in the middle of Phoenix and people don't think of it as a really beautiful place. But I find it really beautiful. And there's a common experience that a lot of people I knew then, and I've, since then I've heard it from a lot of other people, have when they move there. They go to school, especially those of us that have been in places that are very lush and green and there's lots of trees. And you go, and after a few months, you start to dream about greenness and trees and plant life. Because everything there is orange and pink and yeah. brown. There's no green. You have to drive to the northern part of the state or somewhere in California, really, to get any greenness at all. Like most of like that's Phoenix is sort of in the middle of the state and you can drive up to the north to go skiing. And there's lots of trees, Grand Canyon and everything that Flagstaff. And um, everybody that I talked to, I got to about October. I got there in August and I got there in October and I started actually having dreams literally about hugging trees. (laughs) And and everybody was like. You need to go to the Grand Canyon. You'll be fine after you do that. And I'm not woo about any of this kind of stuff, but I was like, fine. So we'll, we'll go hiking. It's October. It's beautiful. Whatever. It's the mountains. The leaves are changing, whatever. Because there are no seasons in Phoenix. It's, right. They're all, it's hot or more hot. Um, so <laughs> and I dry. Go up there. Don't forget dry. And, oh, dry. <laughs> Thoughts about that, too, because they decided to put a lake in the middle of downtown Tempe. Very sustainable. Yes. It's, you know. Easy to maintain. It was fun to be on the crew team. For Arizona State too, because there wasn't no water, so the practices in the morning were all ergs. It was <laughs> wow, it was a mess. So, um, but I went to the Grand Canyon. I, I had been like just like 
frantically dreaming about trees and hiking in places with lots of lushness. I, you know, Alabama is very like huge pine trees and lots of forests and mountains. And so at least where I am in, where I grew up in Alabama. And it was bizarre. I went hiking on this beautiful hike, you know, I stayed there all weekend, came home. I was good after that. The dream was, stopped. It was so bizarre. I, I, and I've heard this from several people. That, that you know they that they say like you have to go out of it and have an experience with it and come back in and then you're like oh okay the the pinkness the brownness the dryness the cacti cacti I'm good I am so. going to have to look into that later because that is fascinating yeah <laughs> I also have to interject here and say that I almost went to Arizona State did you I had a thing for Arizona because my mm. grandparents lived there so it was like a fun place mm. for me right like yeah. I only ever went there in the context of vacation grandma mm. and grandpa you know dining out so I loved mm. it. I applied to Arizona State School of Journalism. Mm. I was going to go to the Walter Cronkite School yes, of Broadcast right. Journalism. You know? Yeah. Do this, basically. Clearly. And for it. I was ready. And I went and I visited. I loved it. And then I stayed on the East Coast for a man, mm, basically. See. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because my high school boyfriend was going to Syracuse. And mm-hmm. I got into Cornell. And it was like, well, right. those are really close together. And if I go to Arizona, we'll have to break up and like... You I know? mean, you know, people have made decisions for worse reasons. And, you Choices know, made for men, but yeah. no regrets. Yeah. No regrets. Everything, everything winds around and comes back to just where you want it <laughs> to be. And here we are. So I want to talk about, you came to the D.C. area, mm-hmm. maybe for a man, maybe for music. <laughs> We're going to say both. We're going to say for faded reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did become a musician. Mm-hmm. And then that has been mainly your career for mm-hmm. the last one million years so <laughs> tell me 25 years yeah, 25 so tell years. me about that tell me about just being uh finding your footing as a working musician mm-hmm. kind of figuring out what lane you maybe wanted to mm-hmm. occupy more or less and then also how you started teaching oh yeah well so it's interesting because like you sort of like phrased it as i came out of college and i became a musician i actually put it really differently i was a musician before i got to college right i played my first paid gig when i was 15 and it was a musical of all things and you were in the pit um, i was in the pit and don't forget i was doing church musicals like down there where i grew up the churches i grew up in a really large mega church and we would have those big easter spectacles that are musicals full on with a full-on depicted crucifixion and the whole nine you know um, i mean i have video of this it is spectacularly interesting haunting um yeah yeah i mean but really also like the choir the choir was like this 350 person choir and it was spectacular you play these anthems with them every sunday morning with this this band and i was like i was bitten by the bug by the time i was in the seventh grade because it's just exhilarating you get up there and it's just beautiful music so down there um there all the ensembles and things are pretty spread out and kind of few and far between you have to drive pretty far and most people play in many different places um and the churches will often hire people to play church gigs and things so i started doing that when i was 15 or 16 years old and you know so i started doing gigs then and i had to start managing my finances and i had a really smart teacher who said you know you should start learning how to teach people you know when i was in high school so I'm my first clarinet student when i was 16 Aww. and she's still my friend on facebook we she just got Aww. married last weekend so. oh yay so like super sweet right yeah um and so i had to learn how to teach really early so i actually got to college already having a clarinet studio of kids that i had been teaching and got there you know taught all through school and teaching is an absolutely a learned skill like you start teaching music like i know a lot of people that come out of um 
come out of school and they sort of drop into having to teach private lessons. And if they haven't done it in school, maybe one of the things that you have to do when you um, are in school for music is a lot of times with like a pedagogy class or something that teaches you kind of how to teach. But what they'll do is throw you into like an, a lesson or maybe observe one that you're already teaching and they give you, you have to observe other people and you kind of think, oh, okay, well, this is how teaching works. And then you get into it and you go, oh no, <laughs> this is so different. <laughs> there are real humans here. It's terrible. There are real humans here. I need to learn how to explain the same thing eight different ways, um, which is a real thing. Yeah. Um, but so I was already teaching students. By the time I left college there in Arizona, I had a studio of 35 kids. Wow. But I passed on to other people when I left. Wow. And so I was already doing it and I knew how to build a studio. So when I moved here, unlike a lot of people who get out of college and have never done this, they drop into, you know, into an office job or something different to kind of make money until they build it up. I literally came here, put up flyers in Safeway and had 60 students within three weeks. Wow. And so, you know, my former husband was like, can we, can you teach me how to do this? How does this work? And I was driving everywhere. My poor car. I had so many miles on my car. Um, and if you've ever had to drive around the DC Beltway at rush hour, I don't recommend it. Mm -mm. Um, but yeah, so I kind of came out and was doing that. And then, you know, you sort of start to p try to pick up your performing career a little bit. And it's sort of about who you know and, you know, what you have to be able to jump on an opportunity as soon as it comes your way. Because the way to kind of break into, at least here at the time, was somebody had to know that you could play and there had to be an emergency, you know. So, so um, I was really fortunate. My husband, of course, was a working trumpet player and I had joined the union. I did the, you know, the whole thing. Actually, I think I joined the union when I got this gig they were he was playing a gig at the national cathedral it was fabulous it was um i even remember the piece it was belshazzar's feast by uh william walton it was, it's an amazing piece um but they needed a bass clarinet player and there are not that many people that even relatively now own their own bass clarinet certainly not back then 20 years ago and he and the contractor was like oh this is bass clarinet player like we we they can't do it now and now we got to find somebody <laughs> he literally is saying he pipes up he's like my wife is a bass clarinet player you should like hire her, you know? And she was like, well, what's she done? And he, he sort of tots out my resume and she's like, well, fine, we'll give her a tryout. You know, so I go there and I'm this little baby clarinet player, you know, with all these like heavy duty people that are playing this concert. And, you know, I showed up and practiced frantically before I got there and like showed up and was able to do it. And everybody was kind of like, yeah, okay, you're in, you know? So then you kind of take gigs as people call you there, you know, you, again, for the first few years, it's always some emergency, you know, that somebody has. And but you start playing a lot of varied things. I've played, you know, orchestras and operas and recitals and all kinds of things. Um, and it gives you the opportunity to sort of see what things you like and don't like, which is kind of great. And I sort of began to realize, again, on an emergency basis, um, somebody called me to play at Toby's Dinner Theater in Columbia. They it's a if you've never been there, it's a little, you know, theater in the round, and it's classic dinner theater. You have your dinner, and then show is right there. And um, they're unusual in that they do shows year-round, 352 weeks a year. I shouldn't say 365 days because that's not true. Um, but they've been there for almost, I think, 50 years. Wow. And, um, again, they had an emergency. They needed a clarinet player. And the guy was just like, I, it's saxophone and flute, too, but I don't even care. We just need somebody. So I got to go in there, and they literally – I was able to learn on the job how to be a theater musician. Like They were like, get a flute, try this part. It's literally one note. I know you probably can't play it, but that's fine. You know, And they were very kind. Toby Orenstein, who owns the theater, was is very kind in letting people work into the job and move into you know different things and very supportive. So I ended up doing that, and all of a sudden I'm now adding a theater musician in addition to opera clarinetist and orchestra musician and 
you know, so. So as I'm hearing you list all of this, um, <laughs> one of the topics that I've discussed on a previous episode is burnout. Mm. And something <laughs> that I've talked about um, on another previous episode is when you're a musician mm -hmm. and you teach all week and so you're very cerebral about music all week, then it can sometimes burn you out for when you have to still have the energy to perform. Mm -hmm. So how did you navigate that? Um, how do you still navigate mm -hmm. that maybe? But it sounds like during this time when you were really building it up and maybe you felt like you couldn't say no to things mm -hmm. as they came up, how did you stay in it, how did you not burn out as you're juggling 60 students and a variety of gigs that are coming at you from <laughs> all over the place? It's really fascinating because you come, music is wonderful and insidious at the same time because you know that you need to be doing a lot of this work. You have to be out working in order to get work. And to turn down work is terrifying because if you turn somebody down, there are people who, if you turn them down once, they will never call you again. And so you, it's kind of not a choice, you know, for a lot of people. Um, and never mind the financial implications of however much you're getting paid. You're having to take whatever it is that you can take to, you know, make a paycheck. But um, especially when you're first starting out, you don't really, it's a little bit like the frog in boiling water, right? You know, like the, the story everybody always tells, it gets hotter and hotter and you don't realize it until you're really just operating at that temperature all the time and it's normal. So um, it was really fascinating when um, the COVID of shutdown, of course, was pivotal for a lot of people. Right. Um, but for a lot of people that I know, a lot of musicians and actors and um, other people, we all of a sudden became very aware of the temperature when we were not allowed to go out anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you realize that you're just operating at this pace. Like, um, I'm fond of the joke now that everybody, when I was pivoting into like a nine to five job, um, they were going, oh, well, you, you know, it's an office job. You're going to have to work 40 hours a week. Do you think you can do that? I'm like, do you not understand that my normal week has been 90 hours a week? Yeah, I was going to say, like all it's going to be very boring. <laughs> yeah. like this What is will like, I do I, with like, the I other have 50 to, hours? For real. I'm like, I had hobbies like when I at some point, but I in the past, like maybe five years before COVID, I had not done any of them because I was always working and I loved what I did. It was great. But um, I'm like, I have time for knitting and I have watch tv and now what what do i do on a sunday that i not heaven forbid you gigs. see your family Dear Lord. <laughs> do you and your husband actually have full-length conversations now we do but we have to we still have to build them in <laughs> <laughs> it's so, a work in progress folks that's <laughs> right but you know very but we also you know this is not round one for either of us right. so you know my current husband and i we, we we build that in because we know that's important you know and it's we make time for it on purpose because if we don't, we know that it'll just be like, we'll just never see each other. Right. We also know what that was like. That's another pro byproduct of COVID to be fair, because we were kind of, I would be in and out. I started my work day at like one or two in the afternoon, some days, some days, seven in the morning, going to school and teaching all day and then going playing shows at night. But I never would get home until like 11 or 1130. And so we got in the habit of, he would take a nap when he came home. He's a teacher. And he would take a nap when he came home from school so that he could be awake with me for like an hour or 45 minutes. And then, you know, I would wake up at like 6.15 in the morning when he would wake up and we would sit and like, I would say bye, you know, or something. But then I, we wouldn't really see each other except for like in between times and we'd text each other a lot. And that was the whole first year of our marriage. And then COVID shut everything down. 
And we got into the habit of waking up together in the morning and having a cup of coffee and sitting and talking to each other for an hour. And before we had to be on, because, you know, I was teaching remotely and he was teaching remotely. And then at night, everything was shut down. We didn't have any shows or no concerts. So, you know, we would sit and we would watch a TV show together and like, you know, do something silly and then go to bed. And we were like, this is amazing. When we started coming out of COVID, yeah. like we were like, this part we are preserving yeah. because this connection and communication made such a difference in our relationship. And that t those, I mean, we preserve that at all costs. Like we don't care how much sleep is in the middle of the night. We always wake up at the 6.15, have the coffee. We He stays up, you know, even now when I have shows at night, he'll do the nap thing, which is not very often. I, I pace it now more than I used to. Um, but he'll stay up and we'll have our little one episode of TV and like go to sleep. And like, it's like, it's so delightful. And we, you know, we see each other a lot more than we used to because I'm not having to run around as much as I used to do. Yeah. But. I love that. I mean, for many reasons. Mm -hmm. First, I love stories of silver linings. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people found some silver linings during mm -hmm. the COVID shutdowns, especially like you're saying, entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. performers, people who were just go, 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 mm -hmm. and were forced to suddenly stop. Whether or not that ended up being a good thing, it at least was a time to examine. It made you pay attention to it. It made you pay attention. Mm -hmm. And if what you decided was you missed that pace, then mm -hmm. great. Right. You then get to good. go back to it yeah. when it comes back. But I think a lot of people did realize maybe they were burning the candle at mm -hmm. both ends and it was time to find some balance. Mm -hmm. And then I also love, you know, you're saying it's not the first go for either of you, but mm -hmm. um, for anyone, whether or not it's their first or second or not even yet a marriage, mm -hmm. just to have that realization that relationships, even friendships, mm -hmm. take maintenance mm -hmm. and communication is key. So, you know, we were joking earlier <laughs> that we hang out once a year um, and we like each other. Right. But that's just the pace that we're on. Because, and we have to schedule it ahead of time. And we because, have to schedule know. it. And it's it's formal. Right. Um, sometimes we even have to record it. I mean... <laughs> I, I like this. You this do what you got to do to make right. a friendship work. But relationships do take work. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, when I had my first adult relationship when I was 17 or whatever, mm -hmm. um, I definitely didn't think about that. I definitely mm -hmm. wasn't thinking like, am I communicating my feelings? Mm -hmm. Am I making time for this person? So I don't know if you're a fan of like love languages. Mm. Yeah, but we that, talk about that, that framework, uh, so mm -hmm. helpful. Like whether or not, you know, each person neatly fits into one category mm -hmm. or not i think it, we're all blends right but just to be able to mm -hmm. use that language of like hey you know i would really feel seen today through like an act of service like mm -hmm. you're doing a great job like affirming me and thank you but like if you could like wash the dishes that'd be mm -hmm. so great like i would yeah. feel way more loved if you wash the dishes um just knowing that it's not weird to feel that way yeah. <laughs> i think in the past like i would notice myself not feeling loved or like just mm -hmm. like not receiving the affection that was being given to me supposedly and then once I learned about love languages I was like <laughs> yeah. this makes total sense right like I, understand this I so definitely enjoy hugs but like let's clean first mm -hmm. yeah. and then absolutely <laughs> we can hug <laughs> so yes. so I just love you like reflecting that like you guys felt that change mm -hmm. oh we are making time mm -hmm. like we're taking quality time not just obviously you know talking and texting and mm -hmm. um, having that kind of cerebral connection, but really being together mm -hmm. and spending that time. 
just like nurtured your relationship. Yeah, it's like it's it really has made a, a huge tangible difference. And, yeah, and the love language thing is so real. Yeah, like we we are very different, very 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 different in how we express things. Like I am a very touchy feely person. Like mm. I want my partner to be touching me all the time, like hugging, holding my hands, you know, all this stuff. He is not that person. To him, if no one, I think if no one ever touched him, he would never notice. Yeah, and that's just not that's just the way he is. It's just you know his 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 is acts of service yeah absolutely like he will do everything for you oh my god he and i should get married <laughs> i'm like that sounds great see same <laughs> acts of service and like don't touch me that's amazing but i i think it's because i have so many children that i'm Possibly? like people yeah. are touching me all the time right. so i think i would notice if no one touched me but because yeah. three people touch me constantly mm -hmm. at least i'm like i'm good yeah i mean and it's amazing like when you think about the way that he processes things like you know, to me, I would be like terribly hurt if no one ever touched me. Right. You know, like, but he also listens to me in that too. Like, this is not something he thinks about doing, but because I, I asked and I said, this is what I need. He yeah. does it on purpose. Like, he yeah. makes it a thing, you know, and like with me, like, I know he is an acts of service person. So it means more for him, like, if I come up on my lunch break and empty the dishwasher yeah. he notices he's like mm -hmm. he brings me flowers he's like this Aww. is the greatest thing you empty the dishwasher yes. i'm like this is awesome love languages <laughs> totally know? change the world it's like <laughs> it's so important because yes that's exactly it it's like you might just think the dishwasher is a chore mm -hmm. so like you might still do it half the time but you're not thinking oh i'm doing this because i love my mm -hmm. husband yeah. but once you realize that it feels to him like a hug yeah <laughs> then when you do it, it's not just the dishes getting put away, which everyone wins when right. that happens. Absolutely. But you also get the satisfaction of knowing that you basically just hugged him mm -hmm. and everybody wins again. Right. <laughs> yeah. Love languages. They're really helpful. Shout out to I don't actually know the name of the guy that wrote that book. Yeah, I, th I, I think it's a book. I think it's a guy. Right. But whoever it was, thank you, sir or madam. Right. I think it was a sir. It's a very helpful tool. It's a very helpful things. tool. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's not to say that I'm good with love languages all the time. Oh, I my gosh. Because no. I know he's going to hear this. So. <laughs> <laughs> you Trust. Know, we have to like. We all have our days. <laughs> yeah. And on the it's days that you don't empty the dishwasher, it's not because you don't love him. Right. Right. <laughs> right. That's one of like the dangers of the love languages is like, right. okay, but sweetie, like even though when I emptied it, it was out of love for you. Right. When I didn't empty it, it wasn't malice. <laughs> it wasn't malice. I just had nine meetings in a row. <laughs> it was it's just like, a busy day. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. They can be, they can be slippery, the love languages, yeah. but still a useful framework, mm -hmm. which we appreciate. Yeah. So you said earlier that you dropped all of your hobbies, but I'm calling you out. Because as long as I've known you, which now is many years, pre-COVID, I mean, I think I feel like we're at like a decade here. At least. I right? Think have to yeah, be. yeah. I think it's a solid decade. Mm -hmm. You have maintained, I believe, a yearly mm -hmm. pork roast, mm -hmm. which takes your spirit of the South mm -hmm. and your love of cooking mm -hmm. and community people mm -hmm. gathering and brings a lot of people together. I met a lot of fun people there. So mm -hmm. tell me about roasting pork tell me about the tradition the joy the process mm -hmm. and why even during your busiest times that is mm -hmm. something that you have maintained and was like the first thing to come back in the kind of post-covid era it was oh, like the yeah. pork roast is back and during covid you were delivering pork you I were was. pork we at a distance well we actually had that whole we had a we had a it was a fundraiser that we ran right you know the cookbook is still in process for yes. it'll be it'll be out at some point yeah we're finished editing but um yeah so it started it's so funny we we jokingly we call it the barbecue with a capital t um because 
when this started like oh it had to have been like 2003 maybe so i think it's no it was 2004 <gasps> this year will be the 20th year of the barbecue oh this my next gosh. spring the year wow. i graduated high school um <laughs> <laughs> but wait I'm i not feel that much older than you that's just i was just out of college at that point okay, so good. you know um by a few years a few years but um yeah so we were talking about um you know i'm from i'm from the south and a lot of the people that i knew here and that i worked with were talking about barbecue and they were like they would name these places that they would go to and i'm not going to necessarily denigrate the old old guard back then but they're much better ones now but um, they would say, oh, this barbecue is amazing. And I, I would look at them and I would just have the one eyebrow like, what are you talking about? You're nuts. Like, what do you, mm. you know, and they'd be like, what is good barbecue? I'm like, actually, I haven't found any here. So shade for the DC area. Um, and so that, you know, I eventually had one friend who was super snarky and he was like, well, you should just make some if you like, I think all, all of ours is terrible. <laughs> and of course, my husband, who was familiar with my cooking, was like, you should totally do that. You know, because um, if I am, if I say so myself, I am a pretty good cook. So um, I, that is my, that's one of my lo love languages. Speaking of that, is m making food for people. Yeah. So because I grew up, also grew up with that. So yeah, right, very relatable. relatable. Yeah. <laughs> this is how we met. Uh, you know, it one is. of many ways. Yes. Um, but um, yeah, so I love cooking for people. I've long kind of maintained the idea that I want to have some sort of regular get together, maybe more regularly even than the yearly thing. Um, where we have people just come as you are at any point. That's always been a rule at my house too. Like if we're friends and I know you, like if you need anything, show up at my door and you're fine. Like it's 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 the way that I love to exist in the world. Um, and so I decided to have a barbecue, right? So I decided to learn how to smoke pork, and so I did all the research, you know, and like, oh, what, what do we use for this? And got a um, an oil barrel smoker with a side box. If those of you that are barbecue aficionados. Um, that was, uh, coal fired. Um, and so worked it out, made a few rounds, you know, and to, I will be, f to be fair, if you do pulled pork, it's not all that difficult. You just have to be patient, I think. But, um, so I did it and we decided to have a little party. We would have a couple people over. We were like, okay, we're going to do a couple of, you know, pork shoulder cuts, you know, and invite about like, I don't know, 15 people, 20 people. And so we came, the barbecue went away like that. I mean, it was gone. Um, and everybody just was talking about it incessantly after that. Incessantly. When are you going to do another barbecue? When are you going to do it again? When are you going to do it again? And so we, we decided, okay, well, we're just going to have one maybe the same time next year. We'll just plan. We'll invite more people and people can invite people. So the first year was 20 people. Second year was like 100 people. And the third year was like... 200 people and this past year when we had it um it was back for the first time after covid over the course of the day it was 350 people oh so um and up to before covid it was about that i mean and so this is the kind of event where it happens in the afternoon we say it starts at a certain time but people kind of know they can show up before not all the food will be ready but by you know mid-afternoon and then it goes into the night and we have people come um because most of my community is musicians um there are people that come kind of before their gigs and after their gigs, between their gigs, you know. So we have people all night, and it's a different stream of people throughout the whole thing. Um, and it's become a, one of the big events for a lot of people that I know. I actually, I mean, not to brag, but I have people that will call me and find out when it's going to be if they don't, if they're not sure, so they can plan their vacations. 
And then it's when official. I, it's now know, a DC institution. Uh, well, and it's really funny. Like, so when we were sitting down and talking about this fundraiser that I did, um, uh, you know, a couple a couple years ago, um, we were talking about like what exactly is the impact of this event? Like, you know, we know I know that for a fact, even before this, I knew that there are at least three marriages that have are because of this event they met there. There um, are and from those marriages, there are now seven children in the world. Um, there are, um, I think the conservative estimate that one of my friends put up is probably a million dollars in gig work that has been arranged at the barbecue between people. And, you know, and that's a lot for musicians. And you think about 350 musicians in the DC area, that's not all musicians, but mostly, um, that's a lot of connections for people, you know, and mostly what I do at the barbecue is I'm just like putting out pork and talking to people and you should talk to this person and, oh, have you met this person? Talk to each other. I never get to talk to anyone at my own event. But everybody else gets to talk to each other. So I have so many people that will come back to me after that and said, I met this guy at the barbecue and now I'm doing this thing. Like there are people that have put together albums and bands and like all this other stuff. It's really cool. So and that's all around sitting around the food. Right. You know, and so <laughs> the funniest thing that did come out of my the end of my first marriage, which, you know, bless him. You know, we, we grew in different ways and moved in different directions. But is that almost everyone, when they found out we were getting divorced, they're like, are you still having barbecue? <laughs> Like who gets to keep the pork barbecue? And I was (laughs) like, "Um." I was like, we're good. It's still going to be happening. It's excellent. And, um, you know, so it has continued. And now, now my now husband has now contributed his recipes to it. It's become this, you know, it's morphed into these different phases of things. A blended family. Blended family. Your (laughs) smoker, his recipes. It's beautiful. (laughs) It's totally true. Like, oh my gosh. Um, And that was like the one thing when I, you know, you split up all your stuff when you get divorced. It's like, I'm keeping this Keeping this goddamn smoker. Smoking the cats and the piano. Bless you, but the piano and the smoker and the cats, they're mine. Right. (laughs) It's good to know what you care about. You know? Priorities. Priorities. So um, that's all amazing. And I am so glad that we got Mm -hmm. to pork because it was on my original list. I'm like, (laughs) we have to talk about pork. I won't press you for a recipe because I know barbecue secrets can be... You know, well, I can give you the redux. Like, you oh, know. okay, real quick, if someone wants to have a we'll have perfect like, pork, so you you, you know. hinted that the most important ingredient is patience. Oh, one hundred percent. So you know, and if we need to on your podcast page, you know, we can. Oh my god, we'll put it, we'll put it down below. I have a blog. We have a. Oh whole my thing. god, we'll so. link to the pork blog. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. Okay, good. This is going um, in a great direction. Right, it's fabulous. There will actually be a cookbook. I'm not trying to shill it, but there, it's we're hoping Please that it will come away. out first of the year because okay, this has been a thing. Yeah. So, um, and I'll talk about that a little bit because I mentioned it a couple times. I feel like I should explain it. Yeah, we'll but, also um, link to that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, that'll great. be fabulous. Um, so, but yeah, so pulled pork is actually kind of a shockingly easy thing to do if. You know, like I said, the main ingredient is patience. Like you hear when people talk about barbecue, the words that people always say are low and slow, mm-hmm. right? And people are afraid of that because they're going like, why am I cooking something at 250 degrees? Isn't it going to like go bad? And what's happening? No, there's magic involved. It's going to go good. It's going to go so good. <laughs> so um, so when any time you cook something that's smoked, the smoke layer, the, when you put it in, you're cooking it at a really low temperature on purpose because... You don't want the outer layer of meat to become so dried out that that smoke flavor can't penetrate the meat. Right. So you have to put it in and just let it sit there. Like, don't mess with it. Like, don't fool with it. You don't have to put anything on it. You don't have to mess with anything. So what I do when I cook a, a pulled pork shoulder, I usually, there are two cuts you can get from a pork shoulder. One of them is the pork picnic and the other is the pork butt. Either of them work. 
Both charming names. Charming names, absolutely. There was a very funny Instagram where I was like putting the rub on it. The rub is the spices that you put on the thing, and I'm like spanking it, and my husband's <laughs> laughing. He's like, "You're spanking the pork butts. It's terrible." Yes. So, <laughs> but um, but so what you do is you basically put a little spice on the outside of the meat, and then you want the meat to just like hang out in this like smoky environment, the smoky warm environment, because the smoke that you're putting in there from the wood chips and things actually reacts with some of the compounds in the meat and it creates what's called a smoke smoke ring it creates this um i forget the chemical i did all this research for the book um that the mark of the skill of a good smoker is how far the smoke ring goes into the meat so in a good one you can get like quarter to half an inch wow into the meat itself and you'll see it because it'll be like reddish pink pink. Yeah, yeah 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 um and that's really just a product of sitting there. So you put the pork roast, if you want to do it, you can do it in the oven. You can do it, I do it in like a grill. And all you need is like a pan to put your pork roast in. And no water, no extra stuff in there. You just put the pork roast with the spices. It's full of water itself and juice. Mm-hmm. And then you put a little box on the side with some wood chips or something in it that's not directly over the fire. So it gets hot, but it doesn't burn. And that's what makes the smoke. So you can do that in a regular grill. Or like I have one where the firebox is on the side and it makes more smoke. You know, um, I, I, But I do like six pork butts at a time. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, and you do that and you just leave it. You just kind of maintain it, maintain the heat. It can be easier if you have something like a gas grill. Yeah. But for like four or six hours. And then um, you can leave it on there for the whole process if you want. But I don't. I take it out after the smoke ring usually is formed by then. Mm. And you take it out, wrap it up in foil, put it in your oven on that same temperature. You're aiming to keep it at like right at like between 225 and 250, the uh-huh. temperature of the grill. Because it's 215 is the magic number uh-huh. So uh, for, the, for the outside of the pork. Okay. So then you put that in the oven and you just leave it. I literally leave my oven on overnight till the same time that I put it in the grill, 24 hours. When you open up that foil, when you take it off the grill, it's just kind of like, it looks like sort of cooked on the outside and it's really hefty and substantial. And it's like, you're like, it's massive. And you put it in this pan, again, no liquid or anything else in there. And you just let it go till the meat itself is, comes up to about 208 or 210 degrees if you use a meat thermometer. You'll open up the foil in the morning and there will just be this like liquid sea of like pork fat and juice. And the meat, like if you literally just poke it with a finger, it'll go and just fall off the bone. Wow. That's literally all there is to it. That's it. <laughs> you know. Now I'm hungry. Patience. I know. <laughs> I should have brought you some. And I have a brisket in my fridge. Oh. So. Brisket is a whole other there skill set. There is slow meat in my future. Yeah. But I really want to introduce you to, last year I discovered a local farmer. Mm. Shout out to Carl oh. at Purifying Pastures. Yeah. He, um, it's about like an hour west and he and his wife have a farm, all pasture raised, and mm-hmm. they raise pork that they only feed fruit. Get out. So most that pork amazing. are corn fed because yeah. it's cheap. Yeah. But their pork are fruit fed. And their pigs also drink some organic pasture raised raw milk. Amazing. So it's like the most pampered pigs. Yeah. <laughs> and But they did that because the wife is a nutritionist and she mm. wanted to make the pigs as healthy as possible. So she just figured out how to feed these pigs. And they have these super healthy, happy pigs yeah. that are living the life. I mean, fruit and milk and yeah. living the dream. Um, and he delivers to the DMV. He Brilliant. comes in and he brings us all our meat and eggs every Friday. So thank you, Carl. Oh. You're the best. Um, looking forward to getting in touch with him. Yeah, you guys should That's totally amazing. hang. Uh, you guys, <laughs> yeah. and he totally is like a community person too. So, oh. absolutely making connections. Amazing. Over food. Love this. As usual. 
Um, okay, I will now swing way back. <laughs> Pendulum. Because you mentioned briefly mm-hmm. switching to a nine to five mm-hmm. um, during slash post pandemic. But it's not just that you switched to a nine to five. You ironically or funnily <laughs> or perfectly switched to a career in public health I did. during the pandemic. <laughs> yes. So many people never wanted to hear about pandemics again. Mm-hmm. And you were like, not me. I want to think about them every day. <laughs> so tell me about that switch from gigging and teaching to working in the field of public health at a mm-hmm. public health department mm-hmm. in data, in, yes. in big data. Tell me about that switch. Um, so, it, yeah, it was really interesting. I've always been involved in some kinds of, you know, IT coding work. You know, I've designed websites. I've done a lot of other things. Um, but it never really, you know, you kind of have the idea, well, like, this is something I could do if I really wanted to, if I wanted to do it more than I would like doing this other thing. And, you know, I'm doing music and I'm having, having a good time. And, um, and like a lot of people, when the COVID pandemic hit, you know, of course, that whole line of performance was gone. And I've, I've never been a person there. I, I think of there are a lot of people that when they go into performance, they do that for the joy of being on stage and being seen by people. My thing is that I just love doing collaborative music. I can do it in my own basement with other people recording or whatever. It doesn't really bother me. You know, um, so and I'm not there for the people cheering for me. In fact, I'd rather be in a pit where no one can see me when I play. I'm primarily a theater musician now. So, um, so, you know, for me, I was kind of like, oh, this is terrible. You know, now I'm not playing these big shows, which big shows with halls full of people. That's tricky. Right. And I started kind of thinking about like, okay, well, you know, well, I don't know if this is going to come back. We're just going to kind of tread water until. And while I'm treading water, I'm watching all this data go by. And I am one of those awful people that, that like, loves to argue on the Internet about things. But I love facts. Mm-hmm. And so I would be looking up. People would be saying, making all these wild accusations. About, you like you facts know, on the Internet? That's well, not what no, the no. Internet's for. <laughs> no, it's really not. Like, they're <laughs> facts and the Internet. That's They seem Terrible completely incompatible. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but I would get really bugged like really bugged because I have, you know, I've had healthcare on the brain for a long time, which is one thing I know that you know about me that I have type one diabetes. I've, I have to keep very good data on myself, right. you know, and I, I've been very interested in, you know, how a lot of that data comes through. And, um, so during the pandemic, I was sort of looking at different things and I got really into the idea of how are we figuring out like people, how many people were sick and where, and like, where were these metrics coming from? And you started seeing that um, people had, they were really having to pull these systems together really quickly. Um, And really during the pandemic, I mean, there was that article that came out, what was it, a decade ago that said like data scientists, it's the sexiest job title or whatever. (laughs) But in, in public health, like the real rise of that, honestly, you know, you see the pandemic really putting you know, putting the fuel behind it because the CDC and the grants and the funding from the government right. is now working through building a lot of the infrastructure we've always wished we had. Right. And um, so, and I state for the record, so I work for the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Um, I am on the, I'm in the, um, uh, say the acronym right, uh, the Acute Communicable Disease Control and Prevention uh, Epidemiology and Data Unit. I'm on the Data Science and Systems team. Have they thought so. of a better title? It just seems very wordy. It's a lot of it's a lot of acronyms, but we just yeah. love that the AC it's ACDC, so we oh, can repurpose the band that t-shirts. Is so it's like, it's, it's that fabulous. is good. That is good. Yeah. Um, I have so many fabulous ACDC shirts now. But um, not that I didn't love the band; they're great too. But 
Um, but anyway, so, you know, this is, you know, my, my, my version and my vision of it, but, you know, not theirs necessarily. But, sure. um, but it's interesting because when I went into data science, it was not particularly to go into to public health. I was literally looking for a tech career that I could leverage a lot of the skills that I had in music. I've been a music administrator forever. I've done a lot of marketing. I've done a lot of, um, you know, building websites. I did a lot of like, you know, traffic data, you know, like who's looking at what, like how do we market things like that. And I would use a lot of the tools that people use for data science in doing that. And um, when during the pandemic, I had someone I knew basically said, you should look at a career as a data scientist. And I was like, what? And they said, yeah, I've been working on this project and I basically have been working with 20 of you for two weeks. It's your brain exactly. Like if you haven't looked at this, you need to look at it. So I kind of looked into it and I thought, man, this is great. It's all the coding stuff that I love and all the data and facts and like, you know, taking, you know, how do we make use of what we know and putting it together. And um, I remember at the time when I started studying data science, I had the thought because I've been looking at all the COVID, man, it'd be great to be working on something like this, like all this pandemic data. By the time I get into it, though, I'll probably be working for somebody else, like a bank or, a, you know, or, a, you know, some large media company or something. Um, and I got very, very, very lucky. Um, speaking of community and connections, um, a friend of mine who is a musician um we were both looking for jobs at the same time. We were kind of looking for different things. I had gone out of this data science training program and was looking for a job. And her roommate from college at music school um, was hiring on this team that I'm on now. And she said, you should talk to her because she's a musician and I know that all the things that you can do, you could use in this job. And, um, and I had the project in the background, you know, that I could show that I knew how to do this stuff. And I talked to her and I was like, frankly, I'm looking at the job and I'm like, I don't, this is not any of the stuff that I trained to do. And I've never actually thought about a job in public health. And then she started talking to me about what they were doing. And I was like, okay, first of all, this is fascinating. And second of all, what, this is awesome. Like, you know, like it's, you know, this is great because what, what was happening is a lot of the things that are happening in different areas of public health now is that the systems that were kind of cobbled together quickly during COVID to bring, bring this data to people are now being built out as robust, replicable systems that can be used for everything. So right. not just COVID, the systems that right. people put in place for COVID. Now it's every kind of disease you can think of. Um, and so, um, and thank goodness, thank goodness, because we needed those systems needed and systems. that data all along. Right. But it's always good to have a reason. Right. You know, thank goodness for funding. No one wants a pandemic. Maybe we can make something good out of it at the end. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So this it's amazing because the work that I do there, um, my team is really phenomenal. Um, they were this teeny tiny little team of data engineers that put all this together. Data engineers and data scientists that put together this whole system that has run this whole COVID pipeline, you know, for, you know, get this data to where it makes a difference in how people can use it. Um, and now we're kind of expanding it to this much larger system. So I am sitting there in the room helping everybody build the next generation of public health data infrastructure. That's and awesome. Dream job. Can't yeah. even lie. I mean, yeah. like I, I, if I, this would have been my dream job. Yeah. And I did not even know what it was when I looked at it at first. And now that's what it is. So. Yes. So I have to say to that person who looked at you and said, I'm working with 20 people that have exactly your brain. <laughs> Like, thank God for the people who see us like that. Yeah. Because that's how I ended up in public health yeah. is I had no idea what I wanted to do next with my life. Mm -hmm. 
And I just literally woke up from a dream that told me to call my friend Trina and ask her. Amazing. And I called her and I was like, can you get coffee with me? I got to ask you what to do with my life. So we did. And Mm -hmm. at the time I thought, you know, I'm such a weirdo. Like I'm passionate about nutrition. I really Mm -hmm. care about food allergies. I really care about autoimmune disease. And I really care about like the food supply and improving it, eating organic. Mm -hmm. I'm a chef. I care about cooking. I care about teaching kids how to cook. I care about healthy Mm -hmm. food. I care about disease prevention. And I love managing systems and people and businesses. Too bad those things don't overlap anywhere, you know? (laughs) Like I have no idea what I would do because there's just nowhere for a person like me who enjoys both health and nutrition Mm -hmm. and wellness, but also like systems management and Mm -hmm. like business and people. Eh, Oh, well, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this person in my life just saw me Mm -hmm. and said, you belong in public health. All the things you care about, that's public health. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the heck is public health? Who's even (laughs) ever heard of that? You know, it's 2019. The public health doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So it was that kind of moment. Like Mm -hmm. what, like your friend saying, the people that I work with, their brains are just like yours. And you're Mm -hmm. like, really? Me? Like this data (laughs) nerd who like plays music, but like knows how to do like search engine optimization or whatever. (laughs) Like I thought I was just a weirdo, like, you know, outlier. There's a place Mm -hmm. where there are people like me. I just so appreciate the people in our lives who see us and who are willing to tell us. Mm -hmm. And it's a good reminder to all of us to be that person for others. Mm -hmm. Like when you see someone and it's so obvious to you what their gifts are, maybe don't just assume that they know. Mm -hmm. Like let people know that you see their gifts because people don't always know what their own gifts are Mm -hmm. or they just think, oh, yeah, like I like that. But it's it's, a thing I do. It's It's no big deal. Right. It's good to reflect back at people how amazing they are, and mm-hmm. it might help them reframe what they care about and find their dream job that they could never possibly have known to apply for. Yeah. And also bless the network where the oh, roommate of the musician and the friend and they're working on a team and boom. Yeah. Magic. Amazing. Like completely fabulous. I mean, the yeah, what you're saying is really it's such a big deal because that's one of the things that I'm, I'm a huge believer in that, that no one is just one thing. Yeah. You know, and that is one thing that is very problematic about being a musician. This is a soapbox of mine, even with my, especially with my students, too. My music Bring students. Bring on the soapbox. Bring on the soapbox. Yes. That nobody is one thing, right? Yeah. Where we're, a lot of people are told as musicians that you have to spend your entire life focusing on the one thing, and this is what's going to make you excellent at what you do. I'll be honest with you. The best musicians I've ever worked with are not the ones that professionals that do it every, every day. Mm-hmm. They're the people that work for the Hopkins Physics Lab as a rocket scientist or NASA as a security engineer or... Um, a chemical scientist over here or a doctor over here or a teacher over here doing teaching chemistry, you know, and it brings such a bigger diversity to the way that people think about the music and what they're communicating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, I find that really problematic in music too, that there's, um, there is so much teaching that is focused on, you have to devote your, the entirety of yourself and not so much that, the fact that if you don't devote the entirety of yourself to that, you're somehow less. Right. I can't tell you how many people, <laughs> when I left, um, when I left music, mm-hmm. I, I can't even say that. She says gigging. With quotes. <laughs> many days a week still. Gigging. Um, and, but when I left music, like, mm-hmm. and, and I never said I was leaving. That's the other thing. I was like, I am starting a job in public health. Like, you nowhere on any of my social media or anywhere else will you ever find 
anything where I said I was quitting. Right. Retiring from music. My best friends who are musicians were like, you're quitting? And I was like, I, who said that? Well, you're not going to do it full time. I'm like, who said I was quitting? Right. You know, remember, I was working 90 hours a week. Right. 40 of that's taken up. I have plenty of time to still do this. <laughs> like, I'm still doing it full time. It's just one full time <laughs> job now is right. music and the other full time job right. is I in have public health. time jobs instead of nine part time jobs. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, and it's it's interesting because there really so many of the people that I work with that I most enjoy working with are the people who have other things and do yeah. other things and are varied and interesting and have other interests outside of it. So like that's one thing I would also say to people, like when you have a passion and a love and a creative creative outlet, it doesn't have to be the only thing you do. Right. And so you were speaking to burnout before. I'm, make, I'm making the pivot now. I'm the guest yes. and I'm making the pivot. Yes, do it. But um, speaking about burnout, that was another thing that I learned in COVID. You were talking about, we were talking about the frog in water, right? Yeah. I didn't realize how burned down I was and how much energy I was using for that yeah. until it stopped. Yeah. And when it did stop, I realized how much energy I had left over on the other side that I was not using. So I was using all of this creative energy to do all these kinds of music. And I was involved in like everything, like so many different kinds of gigs. Then I was over here and my whole half of my brain that was math and science and data and all that other stuff was just like me, you know, like not really doing anything. It was like, okay, I'm over here being bored. Now it's balanced. Mm -hmm. Like I actually have balance in my life. People talk about work-life balance. I still work 80 hours a week. Yeah. But now I have Joyfully. brain balance. Joyfully. Really though, yeah. like when I leave like work at night, you know, I, I go and I play a show and it's just a totally different brain space. I'm using totally different things that are complementary. And I wake up in the morning feeling excited because it's not being so tired of doing only one thing and having the other part like screaming over here like why are you not using me yeah so yeah. so a lot came up for me when you were saying that <laughs> I and I just can't get to all of it but I will say that when I was working as a personal chef mm. um, I love to cook I mm -hmm. could cook all day if you just put me in the kitchen surrounded mm -hmm. by fresh foods I would cook all day and it would be a joy it would mm -hmm. never bother me but it's very much a creative expression for me mm. I think it's very much I like to think how a musician feels while playing. I get to use different textures and I get to think about what I want to turn something into, how I want to express myself through this food and then share it with others to mm -hmm. bring joy and light to their day. But when I was working as a personal chef, I had a few families who totally just wanted to pay me to do that, you know, just food mm -hmm. jazz all over their kitchen. Just mm -hmm. like whatever I was feeling, beautiful fresh foods, whatever spoke to me at the grocery store, they mm -hmm. were happy to have that. And then I had a couple families who, heaven forbid, asked me to cook something specific. And yeah. every time it was like, well, that's not what I want to do, you know? And I had to confront the reality that I wasn't really meant to do food in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love to do food. I love food. I loved owning my own restaurant when it was mm -hmm. just designing a menu every day. And I loved running a restaurant when it was talking about and sharing beautiful food every day. But when it came to a place where somebody was asking me to cook a thing that I didn't know how to cook already mm -hmm. and had to learn how to cook and then didn't really love to cook, yeah. I was like, ugh. And as you know, I'm married to a musician mm -hmm. and, you know, he's had that experience of he loves to play music. He loves playing many kinds of music, but sometimes you're being paid to play music mm -hmm. you don't like. Mm -hmm. And that's not that fun. <laughs> yeah. So that brings me back to something that you just kind of touched on, but you posted mm -hmm. on Facebook maybe mm -hmm. a month or so back 
you posted very passionately about it. And you were just starting to say how it was based on a post that you had seen about how people shouldn't have to professionalize everything they love. So why is it important to you as a musician, person, woman, question mark, and teacher? Yeah, so this Facebook post that I made was based on a, a another post that this woman had made that was sort of talking about there's no need to do everything that you love as a profession. Like all your creative things don't have to turn into a money-making enterprise. And one of the things that I see a lot as a teacher is um, this idea that in order to have um, to become a professional musician, this is the way that we're taught kind of in formal music education, that there's a certain level of effort or accomplishment you have to reach that's required by being a professional. Um, and if you're, you're going to put in that effort, you're going to become a professional. Um, and that's not necessarily true. Like in order to become a competent musician, you know, you still have to have the same amount of effort, but can we maybe make it not about being a professional right. is the way that I think about it. Um, because if you, with my students, what I think about always is the idea that I don't care what they do with music later. I mean, it's not that I don't care, but you know, but, but I, whatever they decide to do with it is fine with me because what I want to teach them and what I want them to be able to do when they leave my studio and when they leave my care as a teacher is to be a functional musician. Can you make the music you want to make in whatever situation you want to be in, however we get there? And, you know, it's hard to kind of convince people, you know, that it takes the same amount of practice to become a functional musician as it does a professional musician. Mm -hmm. So there's that as the first part of it. So, you know, my like I said, my goal is to create musicians, not professional musicians, right? You know, so... I have lots of students that have come out of things and they know that it's fine for them to go do something else if they want to do something else as a job and they, music will always be a part of what they do. Um, but the other part of that is that there's this sort of stigma to when you're taking lessons or whatever, you're studying music, but like if you decide to drop music, that it becomes this like great weight mm -hmm. on you. Like you've decided to quit. And I hate that. I hate that so much. I don't like the word hate. That is one of the few things in my life that I will say that I hate mm -hmm. with a burning passion. Because we are all very different people. Not everybody is meant to be a professional musician. Not everybody is meant to, you know, spend their life in the dedication that it takes to be at the level of performing the way that I have to perform and like your husband has to perform, um, you know, and play this music that speaks to people. Um, now... That also, though, is that the most important part of music for people? Is getting up in front of people and doing it more important somehow than fulfilling that sole need of the person to be to make music? I believe that everybody, everyone is capable of making music in some way. And what I don't want people to have is that attached guilt of I stopped because I had to do something else. Mm -hmm. So I have um, a lot of students and I wrote in this post you know, a lot about, I have a lot of students that come in and, you know, they'll come in and they'll say, oh, you know, I want to take lessons, but I have this basketball thing and I want to go do that. Or like, I want to do this, but I don't have time to practice. And I, you know, I just want to do this. You know, I have to go do this and I can only play like one time a week. Or, you know, you have the kids that come in and they just don't want to be there. And their parents are just hell bent on them actually being a musician, taking lessons because it's good for them. And yes, there is something to that. But also, when you decide to quit, um, 
I don't want them to carry that guilt of I have quit mm -hmm. because more than anything else that anybody ever says to me when they find out I'm a musician and they're not what they consider to be a professional musician or a practicing musician. They say, oh, I used to play, but I never practiced. I'm so bad at it. And I'm like, I, I hate it. I wish I hadn't quit. I mean, we all hear this from so many people, people that we know. Some of us say it. Some of us say it. <laughs> but I read, like, I, there was something that um, Amanda Palmer wrote mm -hmm. that really resonated with me. And it's the way I think about this with my students. When they quit, I always make an effort for their last lesson to be joyful. This is what you've learned. This is what you know how to do. If you want to sit down and learn how to play any of this stuff, now you know how to do these things. You just have to remember and reach back and pull it back out. It might take a little work if you forget it, but it's always there. You've learned how to do it. And I have students that have gone out of like high school or whatever. They go on to be like doctors or lawyers. I have this fantastic chemical engineering student who just graduated from Georgia Tech. I'm so proud of her. Um, and is working in all kinds of like biostatistics and stuff. She's amazing. One of the most amazing pianists I've ever met. Wow. She's continued to play while she was in school just as a way of having another way of being than right. what she's doing. Um, and, you know, but I also have students who have quit, you know, before time. Like they're too busy when they go into high school or they, you know, have a sport that they would rather be doing or something. So let, let that lesson, last lesson be joyful. You've learned how to do these things. I've given you the tools to be able to do this on your own. And you don't ever have to feel bad about stopping. So back to what I said about um, Amanda Palmer. Um, she made a post and it was about something totally different. It was about, it was about loss and grief. And there was something, but there was one line in there that stuck with me massively. I will not allow this chapter of your life to end in self-blame. And I believe this so much about music. I never want my students to walk away from what they're doing because they made a better choice for themselves and feel angry at themselves for stopping. Because what they were actually doing is making a choice that was more true to the people that they are. Do they really want to play basketball more than they want to play the saxophone? We don't have infinite time, right? right. We have to make choices about what we do. That's fine. If you're making a choice that's about something that you would rather do, Make the choice joyfully. Like, I, I agree with that. I will not allow this chapter of your life to end in self-blame. You did not quit music because you're a terrible person. You quit because you chose to follow another path. Right. And that's perfectly fine. Right. And I believe that so much for so many people. You know, paths, as we know, are winding. You, It is not a dead stop. Like, I have um, a student that I love to talk about. He's one of my favorite examples. He just turned 90 this year speaking of public health he's a very famous uh, scientist oh my gosh who, um i haven't asked him about talking about him so i won't name him but um mystery public yeah, health scientist um, i'm excited i'm inspired fun. yeah so he um he but he's a you know he's 90 yeah. and he came to me a, uh, probably i don't know six or seven years ago um a clarinet student you know so at the age of 84 you know and so he had an entire career in scientific disease, in disease research, in viral vector research, right? Wow. And one of the high, most highly quoted, best-known scientists in his field, an entire career, and retired at 65 and decided he wanted to learn how to play clarinet. Hell yeah. And so he did, and he's been playing forever. And he's 90, and he played when he was in a dance band, when he was a kid. But thank God that he didn't come, didn't by the end of it, when he was 65, go, well, I, I quit that and I feel bad about it. And I'm never going to do it again. Mm -hmm. He's come back to it. Like we worked all last summer on the Copeland Clarinet Concerto, which is one of my like favorite pieces of music of all time. Wow. And he just like, 
loves it so much. And you got to think at 90, he's now been doing this for 25 years. Right. You know, I mean, that's insane. Like, you know, he's now been playing clarinet, like, almost as long as I have. <laughs> you know, and it's like really longer when you think about when he was a kid. Right. But, you know, but he loves this so much and he puts the time in. And But I love the fact that he did not carry it with him and he didn't allow it to drag him down that he said no to go in another direction because we would not have all the information that we have, the life-saving information we have, if right. he had decided he couldn't play he couldn't quit playing clarinet. Right, he had to be a professional clarinet player. Right. So that brings up two really meaningful things for me. Mm -hmm. The first is my dad, who played music as a kid and then quit for a variety of reasons, you know, mm. academics, sports, whatever, um, and then had this incredible career in tech, you mm -hmm. know, invented technologies that pretty much everyone in society uses every single day. Mm -hmm. Um and it was his passion. You know, he began computer programming at the beginning of computer programming. He was someone who was able to jump on that boat as it was leaving the dock for the very mm -hmm. first time. So incredible timing, right? Definitely a valid reason not to prioritize music, perhaps. Um, had this incredible career. Retired. And then fell back in love with music. Mm -hmm. um, started taking voice lessons. Joined choirs. And now... Uh, you know, he's retired, but his phone rings constantly all day because he's on the board of multiple choirs. He sings in multiple choirs. He just helped found a new choir. So music is a huge part of his life. And if he keeps this up, you know, until he's 90, yeah, he'll, he'll have a whole second career, basically, mm -hmm. as a musician. But it's something that is only was only possible for him because he didn't do it in the first half of his life. Mm -hmm. um, so life is a winding path and also um something that i was repeated a lot when i was in nutrition school is the phrase life is a long time mm -hmm. because we hear it a lot life is short life is short and it can be for mm -hmm. sure none of us knows how short life will be but life is also a long time mm -hmm. and if you reframe that and you think yeah right now today i want to play basketball more mm -hmm. than I want to play clarinet. Right. But that doesn't preclude me from picking up a clarinet on a weekend when I'm in the mood to play. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that I have to stop. And it doesn't mean that I can't become a semi-professional clarinet player when I'm 80. Yeah. You absolutely. just never know. The other thing it brought up for me is my return to academia. Because um, when you said your goal is to get your students to a level of functionality where they can make the music that they want to make. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that academia is the place for everyone. I don't think everyone has to go to college. I don't think everyone should, mm -hmm. especially if they don't want to. For me, I dropped out. I had a kid. I did many things. And it was gnawing at me. And mm -hmm. I really wanted to return. And I had a lot of people who cared about me and thought I was smart and great who said, you don't need college. Mm -hmm. And that's totally valid. But that piece of getting me to the place of functionality that would allow me to play the music that I wanted yeah. to play, I had things that I wanted to know mm -hmm. about the immune system, about our food systems, about the way the health system works that I really wasn't going to be able to get to on my own. I really mm -hmm. needed to go back. And I just know my own personality. I'm someone that rises to the occasion mm -hmm. when someone else is pushing me. I'm very self-directed. I mean, like, I work mm -hmm. out every day. I do all kinds of things on my own. But when someone has a standard for me 
and they hold me to it, Mm -hmm. I rise. So it was important for me to go back to school to sort of professionalize Mm -hmm. knowledge because it got me to the level of functionality to make the content, to make the, to Mm -hmm. be able to write the papers that made me feel good about Mm -hmm. me, for me. And so I think, I, I love what you said about taking a student to the place of functionality where they can make the music that they want to make. Because maybe for some kids, that's like learning four chords on mm-hmm. guitar so they can like write a ballad for their girlfriend, you Absolutely. know? Absolutely. There's all kinds of ways mm-hmm. to express yourself and to be self-satisfied. And there mm-hmm. doesn't have to be this like bar that we all reach for. So we're all the same mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and I, you know, I know that I benefited from going back to school on my own terms mm-hmm. Because I remember being 17 in college and just being like, "Ugh, I roll," and I never, I never rolled my eyes when I was 31 in college. No. I was like front <laughs> of the like, class, like, do, "Do you guys know how cool learning is? Like, this, this is the is best. Like, do you get what a privilege yeah. this is?" <laughs> and they couldn't possibly. Yeah. When you're 19, you have no idea what a privilege any of this is, mm-hmm. right? It really takes time to understand that. So, yeah, um, yeah that that concept of let's get people proficient enough in things that it brings them joy Mm -hmm. that they can make the work or the creative product or the expression from Mm -hmm. it like let's teach people to cook to the level that they can make food that tastes good to them yes right and let's teach them to play music so they can Mm -hmm. express themselves through music and let's teach them to write and read so they can read the books that they Mm -hmm. like you know like if i could still only read lift the flat books i wouldn't be Mm -hmm. intellectually satisfied right but for my kids right now like well my my littlest the other ones are beyond lift the flap but (laughs) for the littlest one like that's good enough for her today Mm -hmm. she's not trying to read PubMed right I mean she might enjoy the content yeah that's what I was about to say (laughs) she might she might but I'll just summarize for her Mm -hmm. for now she can pick it up through (laughs) me it's totally fine Um, but yeah so I I totally love that Um, Mm -hmm. and I also was really moved by that by that Amanda Palmer quote to not let you Mm -hmm. feel like you uh, ended on a failure well, and that's another thing. I mean, just hearing you talking, there's there's a little bit of a different angle to that too that relates to that as well. That I feel like that quote has so much in it because yeah. it speaks to our responsibility as teachers. Yeah, it speaks to our responsibility as communicators and not only collaborators but you know also colleagues. Yeah. When whenever I have people who are working to become a better musician, um, a lot of times when they come out of like school or what have you, or they get to a certain level, they actually become my colleagues. We play gigs together. I mean, so it's, it's, you, you like work to have them be like joyful in the thing they want to be joyful. in, so you can share that. Right. You know, and there's some of that, like I have a, I have another whole series of soapbox about academia and why are we here? Why are we there anyway? Mm -hmm. You know, and with music particularly, what are we actually learning when we learn music? Are you learning to be a musician and to learn to express yourself? Or are you learning to check a series of boxes that need to keep somebody else's job? That's another different question. And like for me, like I could never stomach a job where I was in place to literally, you know, pipeline kids through to check boxes. It's like I would, I would rather die. Yeah. You know, and but and there are many cases where that happens. I was fortunate that my my teachers and many of the people that I know, you know, most of the teachers that I know in, in music, that's not the case. 
you know, but um, but that whole idea of, you know, if you don't check the boxes, you come out of that with blame also. Like if you're not going to be the perfect classical musician or you choose right. to do something different, the blame that other people heap on you. And this is me like this is my own set of therapy right here, because, you know, when I when I pivoted into data science, that whole thing of people like you're quitting. And I'm like, right. first of all, I never said that. And also I had many people that were my past mentors who were like, I can't believe you're quitting. And I was like. I never said that. And also, we all do lots of things. Right. Like, we're not one thing. That was another Facebook I post, I think. I contain multitudes. Yeah. I contain multitudes. Yeah. Like, I have the capability to do all these things. And, like, this part of my life is richer because now I can communicate, you know, this stuff as well. And, you know, so it's that whole thing of I will not allow your your this chapter in your life to end in self-blame. You are not allowed to blame yourself for being something different than what I want for myself or what I want for you or your parents want for you. It is your choice as a musician to express yourself the way that you need to. That is your intrinsic like path for your own soul and that's what I want them to follow. Yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I think it applies to so many things, you mm -hmm. know? I think it applies to all learning. All learning. Yes, I absolutely. I think that we cannot tell people what their knowledge is supposed to do for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think that the focus should be getting knowledge to people, getting mm -hmm. information, data, mm -hmm. well-structured, well-cleaned, well-visualized mm -hmm. data yes. to oh. people, <laughs> helping them to be, you know, data proficient, data fluent, mm -hmm. um, information fluent, so that they can actually access it and not just look mm -hmm. at it and go, what's that pile of numbers and shapes? Mm -hmm. Um, but then people are allowed to use information and knowledge and data mm -hmm. to their own end and, mm -hmm. and to do with it as they see fit and to express themselves as they see fit. And mm -hmm. that's what life's all about. If there is free will, which I think there is, <laughs> I can't be sure there could be right. a puppet master and right. I will never know, or maybe I will one day, but right now <laughs> I don't. So from this place of uncertainty, I say we have to let people take knowledge or music mm -hmm. or talent and their gifts and do with them what they're going to do. Yeah. And that's one of, beautiful. One of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite, favorite series of books um, is there's a mentor in the book that, you know, his thing that he passes on to his students is literally encapsulated in a quote and it's all knowledge is worth having. Yes. Like, Yes, it is. I don't have a tattoo of it yet, but I'm going to. I was just going to say, because I have my book I have quotes designed, tattooed so, on me. Yeah. Up up my arm here, it says, yeah. a purpose of human life, no matter who is controlling it, is to love whoever is around to be loved. Yes. I love that so much. Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. Kurt Vonnegut, I love you. Um, okay. Another wild swing. <laughs> because otherwise, we'll just do full this forever. Them. I'm right. full of them. <laughs> so public health mm -hmm. is a big passion of mine. Mm -hmm. passion of yours now and there are many important topics in public mm -hmm. health and as i've talked about many times uh public health is often not personalized mm -hmm. enough we talk about the data we talk about the numbers we say you know x number of people died or x number of people were diagnosed mm -hmm. and then we don't actually zoom in to the people mm -hmm. so you now work in public health but mm -hmm. you have experienced the health system very intimately mm -hmm. as a human as an mm -hmm. N of one, mm -hmm. as an individual with with personal experiences, um, because you have type one diabetes. I do. Yeah. So I want to chat a little bit about what it's like. Um, first of all, the experience of being diagnosed mm -hmm. um, and interacting with the healthcare system. Maybe some of the challenges of being 
like self-employed mm. oh yeah with Absolutely. a chronic illness yeah. um and then i also would love to hear you reflect on if you would the experience of being a person with a chronic illness that is talked about in the public health sphere as mm -hmm. a topic but isn't necessarily focused on the people experiencing it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how it feels to experience that divide up close. Yeah. Oh, so many thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> let's see where to start. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to think of, um, it's interesting to be a type one person who works in data and who works, you know, in, especially in public health, because there are, it's one of those diseases that people talk about. But of course, in the work that I do, of course, it's not as urgent. Like, you know, I don't hear about it in my particular day to day because right. it's not one of the ones that we track. But um, but it's fascinating to hear, you know, to think about, like, how you have to navigate that as a, you know, as a human being, because um, the healthcare system that we have here is not designed to help the person. It's designed to help the average. Mm -hmm. And so like, for instance, when I was diagnosed, I was an, I, I was at the time um, considered an, an anomaly. I was diagnosed when I was 23, I'm 46 now. Um, oh wow, so that's official halfway mark. It is, right, yeah. My, my dia birthday is on May 5th. Wow. The actual date. Wow, yeah. So, um, yeah, I was diagnosed when I was, you know, about, oh, I take that back. Not quite. I was 24. Okay. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, it's been like half my life I've dealt with it, but I also, you know, kind of came into it as, um, a person who did not fit the visual profile and I didn't fit the age profile, you know? So when they're looking at me and thinking type one, you know, like I said, um, what I, just said a minute ago about it's not designed to cater to the person it's designed to cater to the average how right. fast can we diagnose somebody what what are the minimal tools we can use and we're going to go on that instead of using the things that were designed to help figure out you know what exactly this is because let's be honest doctors don't have enough time to spend right. with their patients and the system isn't designed in a way you know to really allow that and you know bless all the doctors that do do that you know, that sort of look at you and go, okay, what does this mean for you? Because I do have very a very good team of um, doctors at this point that do do that, that I've chosen for that reason on purpose. Um, being a self-employed person and a musician with type 1 is challenging, as I mentioned before, 90-hour work weeks. Right. Um, you know, type 1 is one of those diseases where... Um, for those of you that don't know about what type 1 is, basically your pancreas... pancreas um, it's an autoimmune disorder where your um, your own body attacks the islet cells in your pancreas that um, produce insulin. So um, the major onset of it is that there's, you know, your body has attacked those cells to the point where you're not making enough insulin to, like, kind of have your body uptake the nutrients and the, you know, the things that it needs, which is glucose. Um, and over time, you know, it depends on the person, but most or all of those cells are destroyed. Right. So that means that you're going to be dependent on insulin for the rest of your life. There is no lifestyle. There's nothing that can change that because it is an essential, um, it's an, you know, an essential substance that your body is not making that it needs. Right. So, um, so that means that you are now reliant on drug companies to provide you with the insulin. You're reliant on doctors for those prescriptions and for the diagnoses and to tell you the, what the right thing is to do and the right amount to use. And even though you have to manage it yourself. 
So, you know, if they're, you can easily walk into a doctor's office and they say, okay, well, you're type one, you have to eat breakfast at seven, you know, seven in the morning, it has to be 30 grams of this and, you know, one o'clock and then, you know, lunch and a five o'clock dinner. And then you have like a peanut butter cracker before you go to bed and that's it. That's your life now. And if you're a musician and you don't work a nine to five job, you look at that and you go, yeah, no, that's not going to be happening. And there are many, many people. Should I eat the peanut butter cracker before or after my gig that goes until three o'clock in the morning? Right. Well, and there was... (laughs) I have a funny story about that, actually, because when I, um, you know, you have that. And I was very, I've been very fortunate to have doctors, you know, after my initial diagnosis. So this is to speak to that. I, there's a story about this that I feel is really relevant. And that's that idea of looking at the the average, not the person. And um, when I was first diagnosed, they took a look at me. And if you're seeing the visual of me, I am about the same size now as I was when I was, you know, first came down with type one. Um, so which is to say I'm a larger girl you know, which is fine. I've always been this size ever since I was a kid. The It's not like I went and ate donuts and whatever. My mom was a complete Whole Foods, you know, organic co-op, you know, cooked everything herself, nut. There was not a whole lot of, you know, any junk, anything in our lives or any unreasonable amounts. This is just my body type. I look like everybody in my family and not because we eat crazily. We just all look like this. And um, so when they took one look at me, when I came into the emergency room, because what happens often when you have type one is there's some catastrophic event. You have to take you, you know, you pass out or something. And they're like, oh, well, I had a doctor actually look at me and he goes, did you know you were diabetic? And of course, my father-in-law was a, was a doctor and I, I, knew enough of being around people. And I was like, no, I did not, sir. And I was like, I was so done. I was done. Because I was like, oh, this is how this is going to go? Oh, no, we're not having that. You know, and I was like, no, I haven't. Thank you very much. You know, and these are all the symptoms. Would you care to take a look at that? You know, and I was really mad because they made the assumption that because I was bigger, that it was because I just was not taking care of myself. Right. And it's like, sir, I have just finished running two half marathons, like at time. I have nothing for you. And so, you know, and they weren't having it. They were like, you're type two. We're just going to send you out of here. There's literally a five minute antibody test that could have told them that I was type one that they did not do. And so So they just diagnosed you based on blood sugar and they didn't actually look into the root cause. No. Wow. And when they sent me out from there, they sent me out of there with no insulin prescription, no any of that stuff. And as a type one person, you're guaranteed you're going to crash out again. Right. Right. So I was fortunate that not all of my islet cells were gone or I would have been back in the you know, in the hospital immediately. But, um, you know, went to see my primary doctor and he was like, this is not right. I want you to actually go see an endocrinologist and talk to them. The minute I walked in there, she looked at all of my lab things and she was like, yeah, no, let me, let me, can we like get your blood and do the test? And she like, literally they went out They're like, the nurse came back in like 15 minutes later and was like, Oh yeah, she's type one. And I was like, Oh, that's all that took. And I was in the hospital for three days over there as an uninsured person at the time. So, mm. you know, and they didn't, they figured none of that out. I had no training on how to do any of these things, but they were looking at the average, not the person. Wow. And the, you know, there's much to be said for that, you know, thing you hear people talk about too, where if you are the person in the hospital, your voice is not heard nearly as much as it should be sitting in the bed because they automatically discount what you're saying. Right. And, you know, so I was fortunate that I had a, a, fairly strong advocate and my former mother-in-law who is a delightful person and a force of nature and I miss her all the time um you know and she sort of was like yeah this is crap we're not having this you know so we were out of the hospital at a reasonable amount of time she's like you need to go see somebody else and talk to them so anyway um as a person who was not 
insurer and as a self-employed person. That is a hefty burden to put on people. Yeah. Um, at the point when I was diagnosed, we were fortunate, we live in Maryland, um, that there was a program that was designed. It was the precursor to what we think of as um, to, to the Affordable Care Act, basically, um, where if you had some sort of chronic disease, you could apply and get insurance through the state. Um, without that, I would have been completely toast. Um, because, um, thank God for forward seeing government and health policy because, um, so, you know, I was able to get that, but even at that, that hot, that one hospital bill for the three days, like put me underwater for a good seven years. Wow. It was, you know, and even then I fought to get them to not pay some of it because of the really shoddy job they'd done. But, um, so Yeah. Uh, it's problematic, right? Because, you know, as a self-employed person, then you go, okay, how do I coordinate all this care? As a type one person, I have a team of anywhere between eight and 12 doctors that I have to see between three and six times a year. Um, and so that's all those doctors, all those copays, all the insulin, which can be insanely expensive if you don't have, um, of ins- if you don't have insurance, fortunately, there are programs that allow you to get it for relatively inexpensively. For instance, the one at Walmart, $25, you can get insulin no matter what happens. And I want everyone to know about that because yeah. there's no need for anybody to die because they are rationing their insulin. There are ways you can get around that. Um, so there are lots of programs to help people with that as well. And that's another thing that I feel really passionately about because um, I'm very thankful for the Affordable Care Act. It still has left a lot of people in the lurch. Yeah. Um and there's no need for anybody to die from diabetes from a drug that can be had for less than a cost of a reasonable dinner somewhere, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, maybe we can link mm, uh, yeah. in the show notes. It would be great to, to some maybe of those some, Are there any, like, education nonprofits or Absolutely. places people can go to yeah, find that information? Yeah, find that out. Okay, great. Um, yeah, and it's an interesting kind of quandary as, you know, when you sort of start looking at a disease that nobody really looks at because it's quote-unquote manageable. Right. You know, and there are ways that people are working on curing it, but it's also kind of, because of our health system, not in the interest of the people that are, you know, providing the solutions to cure it because they're making enormous amounts of money off of us. Right. So there's that. Right, yeah. I mean, if you've found a highly profitable management tool, Mm -hmm. it can be difficult to motivate the companies that would also be funding the discovery of something Mm -hmm. maybe better or safer right or just like sort of healthier long-term guarantees sustainable health Mm long-term not as many dangerous blood sugar swings or having Mm -hmm. to prick yourself many times a day yeah um although the cgms have changed the game a little bit with that yes you were flaunting your cgm earlier do you want to highlight it yes dexcom with its dragon sticker incredible um yeah this is a game changer um technology is always getting better for these sort of things i um i um a lot of and a lot of people that work with type one um manage it using an insulin pump yeah and one of the things that you hear a lot you know all the diabetes commercials about pricking your finger and all that stuff is the thing that like we don't have to do anymore like it's you know the the a cgm is a continuous glucose monitor and it basically takes your blood sugar every five minutes or so like from wherever it is and you can wear it for like 10 days or whatever at least the one i have and um you know shout out dexcom y'all are awesome so cool um they have a new one coming out that you can wear for longer so i'm excited about that but um yeah it's kind of like you know i when i it's interesting to sort of talk about it and think of the tech as progressing because it's no longer considered to be like 
I'm not saying it's not dire and you don't have to manage it well, but it's not the right. really the sort of death sentence that people used to think it was. If anybody right. ever, ever, ever watched that old episode of MASH, you know, where they find the pilot who has diabetes and they have to ground him immediately. It's, you know, like, it's terrible. It's horrible, dangerous. You know, and the first time I saw that, I was like, really? That was a thing? And I started looking into, like, some of the things that used to happen, you know, yeah. and, like, you know, the things you were not allowed to do if you were type 1 that I now have not as many issues with, you know, so... Yeah, I um, my best friend, her uncle died from type one diabetes mm-hmm. because he grew up in, uh, like a town where partying was mm-hmm. common, mm-hmm. and uh, people saw him passed out in the street, and they just thought, you know, oh, oh. another passed out drunk, right? Oh, no one even man. thought to stop wow. and help him. They just left him, and he just was having um, like a blood sugar coma. Yeah. yeah. So I think, obviously, it's still a difficult illness. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, there's more compassion and education in the world in general mm-hmm. that if we see someone passed out, we would at least call someone. <laughs> right. um, that just feels like especially uh, dark. But um, it is really amazing how far mm-hmm. we've come in terms of management. Um, you know, my lens into this kind of thing is with food allergies. Mm-hmm. And when my daughter was born in 2006, her list of allergies meant that we basically couldn't buy anything packaged uh, or dine out anywhere mm-hmm. because there just weren't options. There weren't gluten-free menus. There mm-hmm. wasn't gluten-free bread. There was one gluten-free bread, mm-hmm. and it was just terrible. <laughs> yes. um, energy, and it came in this weird plastic, and it was crumbly and also bitter. It was just bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And now, you know, you you could be in Illinois or Ohio or somewhere, you know, far away from like the metropolitan, mm-hmm. whatever, like New York City or like San Francisco, where you, you could probably get gluten free stuff like 15 years ago. You can be anywhere now in mm-hmm. the U.S. and go into a coffee shop and they'll have an almond milk latte mm-hmm. um, or an oat milk latte. And they'll have a gluten-free vegan cookie option. And mm-hmm. it's just like, what? Yeah, How did so we great. get here? <laughs> so shout out to the market for those yeah, innovations totally. and for going after the cash, but in a way yeah. that has benefited many lives. Um, and hopefully we can see the healthcare market continue to improve and shift. Mm-hmm. Um, the Affordable Care Act, obviously, one of the most important things about it, maybe the mm-hmm. most important thing, is the protection for people with chronic illness. Absolutely. Because 100%. there are so many heartbreaking horror stories of people who were just, you know, born with a chronic illness mm-hmm. or developed one mm-hmm. in the middle of their life and were just shut out from the healthcare market. And um, I think as Americans, even though we do debate mm-hmm. fiercely, the healthcare conversation. If we have an entrepreneurial ideal, if we believe that the American dream is being able to take your talents and your hard work and turn them into something great, then it really allows a lot more people to do that if we mm-hmm. have affordable health care. Absolutely. And there are many avenues into that and many things we need to work on, but mm-hmm. um, protecting people with chronic illnesses that they mm-hmm. did not choose and could not possibly have chosen mm-hmm. and would definitely not choose if given the option. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I mean, happy to not choose anaphylactic food allergies. Yeah, no. We'll just put those right back in the box. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very important. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I work in policy now. I definitely mm-hmm. will always be working on policy and mm-hmm. always wanting to make it better. 
but we have to take our wins where we have them and mm-hmm. then try to pile bigger wins mm-hmm. on top of those wins. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we can keep all of us in our own way working mm-hmm. together to educate and advocate and improve. Yeah. Because everyone everyone needs that. Yeah. There's so many different varied experiences and different things that we don't see in other people too, like with chronic diseases, like, you know, the person next to you may have one and you don't even know it at this point, but that may be a person who could lose their job. Like I feel passionate about this in data, for instance, because it is so important, like some of the the data protections that we have in place for some some of the stuff, because still it is, you know, it's illegal to discriminate on based on some of those things, but it absolutely happens. Right. And, you know, it's really, it's fascinating to see like how those regulations have changed and are changing and what people are trying to do, put in place to make that more possible. And thank goodness for the Affordable Care Act too. There's parts of that that affected that as well. Yeah. So a hundred percent. Um, so circling back again to, to stay with this, but to just reflect again on, um, being a person who personally experiences a topic, mm-hmm. but then is working in a space where that topic is coming up, but mm-hmm. it's coming up in a numbers in a data in a generalized, yeah. what's that like? Like, what's it like to be in rooms where sort of chronic illness, maybe quote unquote, is being thrown around, but they're not talking about the individual. Mm-hmm. And do you think that it's possible? Like one of the things that I struggle with and I ask everyone that I'm sort of close to to help me figure this out mm-hmm. is how can we scale the personal, you know, mm. because mm-hmm. it's challenging because we are all different and certain things aren't scalable. But how can we shorten that distance between the data mm-hmm. and the lived experience? Yeah, that's a great question to think about because, you know, and granted in my, like I said, in my daily, I don't have to actually deal with the type right, of side right, of things, yeah. or chronic disease generally, at least not yet. Yeah. We'll see. Um, see where the, see where the gig goes. Right. Um, but, but it's interesting to sort of think about, you know, when you see numbers on a page, they, the graph seems like something. And, you know, for my experience, I can come back to, you know, the work that I do in communicable disease. Like when, we look at things like COVID numbers, um, so much of the pathway to scalability is being able to communicate to people that this is important because that is a person. Right. And one of the reasons I was really passionate to get into healthcare data and that first initial ping of like, wow, maybe I could work on this kind of epidemiology data, like was because, you know, and this is a shocking statistic for a lot of people, but I went to 77 virtual funerals during the COVID pandemic. Oh, my God. And each one of those people was a person. Yeah. But that's less than a weekly count for most counties of the number of people that died. I know every single one of those people in my mind as a, as a you know, as a whole and physical person. So when I see, you know, death counts of 500, 600, that to me, like in my work and in my mind, I absolutely put my feeling of those people in that space. That is 500 people who are no, no longer on the earth because of this thing. How can I help fix that? And I think that is one of the things that um, in scalability, it's important. And some of these protections we were just talking about are also very important in terms of chronic disease. Because of some of the lack of protections that we've had, you haven't had a lot of people who are willing to talk about it when they have it. 
right. um, because it can impact their jobs. They can be fired. They can be kept from possible work. I know even as a freelancer and as a musician, um, there are situations where I can absolutely tell you I have not been hired because I have because I have type one and I have to wear an insulin pump. And what if it beeps during the middle of a rehearsal or a recording? And I mean, I'm not irresponsible about it. I know how to manage it so it doesn't. But they have that in their mind, and it's not, you know, you know, do they have that in writing? No, of course not, because they would get sued. But maybe not by me. But you know, but because but we also just kind of live with that so much that we don't even think about it, right? right. So, but the idea too that if you see that person as this is a person that has that, and yet look at what they're life is like right i feel like that's such a big help because what people with chronic diseases are capable of doing so many things because of all the changes in technology but we also need help in doing things so like whenever i have a choice like i'm the person that speaks out about it like you know i'm, I'm that annoying again i'm that annoying person on the internet when somebody makes the joke about wilford brimley and the diabetes commercial i'm like shut up i'm like i, li I my friends hate this because they know they can't even make a joke about it and i'm like that's not how this works that's not how any of this works can i direct you to this information source and i don't ever want to hear you say this again you know and it's a sort of you know like but also more helpfully like whenever things have come out and there's been a lot of debate you know on social media and other things i try to make a point of putting a face to it like when somebody talks about like well why are we having all this stuff and paying for all this healthcare for people with chronic diseases there was a lot of debate about that during the ACA right. roll up and I literally made several posts and I'm like when you talk about this and you're talking about we don't want to pay for this this is me that you are condemning to death if you don't if this doesn't happen I die literally and you know or this person cannot function in their daily life it comes back to things like remote work and stuff like that too how many people who have lived with chronic diseases and disabilities are now able to work a nine-to-five job in a way that they couldn't before because they couldn't even get in a building you know but they're able to work remotely from home it's a different question it's like making that more human people understand that when they know the person more intimately and they see the person i feel like yeah i really just that was beautiful <laughs> everything you just said <laughs> thanks i really i really loved every bit of that I, and how I th you know how it exists in, like in my heart all the time yeah well stuff. thank you for sharing it because i i agree with you and i i shared something recently on linkedin mm -hmm. um about knowing my why mm. um i'm someone for whom motivation is really important why am i doing what i'm doing because the world is jacked up and it's easy to go dark, you know? It's easy to go, gosh, darn it. Like, what the heck? Why am mm -hmm. I trying so hard? But I have three reasons mm -hmm. every day that I I know them inside and out. And I know what they're capable of. And I know why I want to make the world better and safer. Mm -hmm. And um, and I know many other people that I want to help, too. Mm -hmm. But those three are really it for me, you know? Mm -hmm. That's like jump in front of a bus kind of. Mm -hmm. kind of level of why and so what you just said about you know knowing people up close mm -hmm. and taking that intimate experience of the people that you know and trying to make sure that you hang on to those feelings when you're looking at a data set so you don't go numb to mm -hmm. the numbers um, because numbers can be numbing mm -hmm. and it can be a way that we distance ourselves and as humans do, we have a really bad, um, we have a really bad ability to conceptualize large numbers too. Isn't right. there's some, some metric that somebody quotes is above a certain amount. Like we really can't even conceive what that means. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, it's like, exactly. 
Yeah, and and of course, like as we all know, during COVID, the numbers were so big that you mm-hmm. just you go, well, that's obviously a number I can't even picture. So, mm-hmm. moving right along, um, mm-hmm. or sometimes the numbers are shockingly small. Like the other day, I saw something like talking about dietitians, and it said something like, of the seventy five thousand registered dietitians in the U.S., and I was like, what? You're right. Like, there's only that. Many? We only like, ha- like what? And I know half yeah. of them. Like, how right. is this possible? I swear <laughs> right. to God, I know like fifty thousand dietitians. A large double digit percentage are right. my friends on LinkedIn. Right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But is it true? Like, I'm gonna have to go back to it. But sometimes numbers can be shockingly mm-hmm. small mm-hmm. when you think about how many people in this country and would benefit from a dietetics mm-hmm. intervention, right? Or like a consultation or having a dietitian in their doctor's office to do a mm-hmm. secondary follow-up with them. Like, do we really only have that right, many? Only that many, really? So we're going to have to look into that. But um, I really love what you said. And I think I just want to say it again. Like, think about the people that you know mm-hmm. and think about those feelings that you have for them. And remember that every single number in a data set mm-hmm. about people is a person like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and that's how we can make public health more personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Katie, I want to thank you for coming today. I really appreciate it. And I know that we could talk all day long. We're going to have to hang out again. Clearly. Not on camera. Right. Maybe on camera again, too. Mm. But in closing, yes, she's here for it all. She's down. But in closing, I have to know, because earlier, before we began recording, my (laughs) five-year-old was reading to us about bugs. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that you love spiders. It's true. So I need to know, in conclusion, why do you love spiders? Oh, man. This is such a great story. I love this story so much. So when I was teaching uh, in the studio where I used to work, um, there was a bay window next to my chair. And, you know, we, I'm living and working in Northern Virginia. Um, there, you know, it was, had a beautiful piano and I was sitting there, I had my chair and my lamp. And I looked outside the window one day when I got there to teach and there was a huge spider that had made a web across the window. If you know anything about them, it was a species of orb weaver that we have here in the, um, DMV area um, that it's kind of they have red and black legs and a big round body. If you live here, you've probably seen them. They make webs, especially in the fall near near you know the turning from summer to fall, um, and they make really big, really robust webs across walkways. So people hate them because they're you know they if you walk into them, you turn instantly into a martial arts expert and try to get them off of you, even if they're no longer there. Um, anyway, so she she had made this enormous web across my window. And it was kind of midway through the summer. And um, so if you know anything about orb weavers, they um, are very um, poetically perfect spiders for what we think of with their webs. They make these large webs with all these spokes. And um, what they do, the reason they're called orb weavers, is because they take their webs and when they're done with them, they ball them up and they throw them away in these little balls of silk. And then they make a new web. And they do that every day, you know, when they are going to make a web, they do it about, you know, early afternoon because they use the light from, that's why they make um, webs across walkways and things. They use a light behind them to lure the bugs into their webs. They're very smart. So she was using my lamp in my window to lure the bugs toward her web. And so I would see her make her web and I was like, this is so cool because I was sitting there and she was about maybe 18 inches from my face on the other side of the window. And so I could see her hanging there. You know, I'd tap on the window and she'd vibrate the web a little bit. She was huge. She's about this a little bigger than a quarter. 
you know, with her legs all out. And so she was there every day when I was teaching. I taught every day at this studio. And I would see her every day, make her web and spin it and catch her prey. And then she caught some different things. By the time I was done teaching at night, she would go up into the little corner of the window and stay there. And I watched this for like two months every single day. And um, so I called her Eleanor because, you know, as we're bringing it back to, to Beatles, I play in a Beatles band. And, um, of course. You know, Eleanor Rigby sits in the window. So I named her Eleanor and I watched her every day. And those kind of spiders, when it turns cold at the end of the year, that's the end of their lifespan. They die. They leave an egg sac that hatches out to become their offspring in the next year. And I found myself unable to ever look at the spider the same way. Because she, I had spent so much time watching her at a remove right there. It was impossible for me to be scared of them anymore because they were right there. And I sort of became fascinated with bugs. So um, fast forward to a little longer after that, I had been, you know, Facebook has a lot of great groups. And I joined one about bugs. One of my friends had started one where you would post the bugs near where you were are and like ask, what are they? What is this thing? And the rule is you couldn't talk about a bug. You couldn't do that thing that we talk about where we're like, oh, burn it with fire, you know, kill it. But you had to be inquisitive about it and curious and not kill it. And the first tenet of this of this group was a poem by Nikki Giovanni, which I absolutely love. It's life-changing for me. It was called Allowables. If you don't mind, I'll read it. Please do. Um, so this is Allowables by Nikki Giovanni. I killed a spider, not a murderous brown recluse, not even a black widow. And if truth were told, this was only a small sort of papery spider who should have run when I picked up the book but she didn't, and she scared me, and I smashed her. I don't think I'm allowed to kill something because I am frightened. Yeah, that got me. Yeah, <laughs> I love that poem. Makes me cry every time. Yeah. So it no, made, I'm it, like... made, it made me cry to hear it. <laughs> we saved the tears for the end. <laughs> so as a, as a result, I now know I now know way too much about spiders, and I love them. And every time I encounter someone who's afraid of them i encourage them to look at them there are in fact only three medically significant spiders in the u.s so if you encounter one it will not hurt you it is probably more scared of you than you are than of it and you know if you let it go on its way it'll do its own thing so i also love and want to end on and might have to make t-shirts of the metaphor of building something as beautiful and as intricate and mm -hmm. as perfectly located as a spider's web, mm -hmm. and then just balling it up and throwing it away. Right. Like, let's all do that right. with, with our art, with our academic mm -hmm. writing, with our creations that are so precious to us. Let's, mm -hmm. just, let's just live in the habit of doing the best that we can, as if our catching our food depends on it, mm -hmm. and then every day just ball it up right throw it away do our next best work and do the next best thing right and Walk. hope that people have grace for us like we have for our spider yeah. friends yes and continue yeah. on our winding path that's right <laughs> well katie thank you so much for coming i'm so grateful i'm so grateful to <laughs> have you, you as a friend yeah. i'm so grateful that you were down to join me for this conversation um and that you shared everything that you shared yeah thank you so much for having me this has been really enjoyable it was my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast. For more information on today's guest, Katie Ravenwood, or any of the resources or poems mentioned on today's podcast, please visit the show notes. For more information on me, Marion, please visit my website at marionflaxman.com.
This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.